This is episode 232 of IDRA Class Notes. It's a false scarcity that's created with the digital divide. It's not really true that we don't know how to solve this, that only some people can have access and others can't. No, we actually know how to solve this. And there is the technology, off-the-shelf technology, that can solve this in low-income communities. It's about people having access to this knowledge and information and sharing it so that they can know, hey, we can get that. We deserve that. It's not just if somebody wants to provide it for you. Hello and welcome everyone to IDRA's podcast, Class Notes. I'm Thomas Marshall and I'm a policy fellow here at IDRA and I'm going to be having a conversation about digital redlines. Today, I'm joined by Jordana Barton with Methodist Healthcare Ministries. Jordana, can you please introduce yourself and tell us how you became involved with this work? Thank you, Thomas. So I'm Jordana, and I'm Vice President of Community Investments with Methodist Healthcare Ministries. And we serve communities to achieve health equity and break the cycle of intergenerational poverty. Our work and our community investments have to go very much to the root causes of different systemic barriers to upward mobility for families. I originally got into this area of digital inclusion. I was working with the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, the Federal Reserve System, and I was doing a study of the Texas border colonia, some of the lowest income areas of the of the country and certainly of the state. You know, one of the things that characterizes colonias is the the lack of some of the basic infrastructure like water and wastewater, uh, paved roads and so forth. And historically, a lot of work has been done by community activists and leaders and and, uh, elected officials to try to fix that. So I was doing a study to see where we were. I definitely wasn't asking anything about broadband infrastructure or Internet connectivity, but actually in, in every county the families that I was talking to or the the people I was talking to in the focus groups and interviews, it came up. And so I had to, I had to try to understand it. And in fact, the community wanted to solve the digital divide on the Texas-Mexico border. And so I really had to learn how to really solve it rather than having just band-aid approaches, right? There was why the U.S. invented, you know, the internet and the advent of the commercial internet began in about 1995. Why were we here at this place where huge groups of people, mainly minority, low-income people of color, elders, and basically low-income people, do not have access to what is now essential infrastructure in our society? Absolutely. And, and thank you so much for kind of broadening out everything that you've done in kind of this community aspect. I think it's going to really speak to a lot of what we're going to talk about today. So for folks that don't know, I think a lot of folks may listen and have heard of redlining before, but could you define what digital redlining is? Yeah. In fact, when I was working with the Colonia residents on the Texas-Mexico border, one of the first things that I did was share their stories about the digital divide, the homework gap. I didn't know it was called that at the time back then. But I shared their stories with the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System that oversees, along with the OCC and the FDIC, the Community Reinvestment Act. And the Community Reinvestment Act is one of a very important piece of civil rights legislation in this country. Back in the 70s, it was it was created to 
to counteract redlining, which had happened in this country for decades. And, and I can show you some maps, right? Like of San Antonio, for example, where we're sitting, right? And you can clearly see those old maps that show the lowest income neighborhoods. There's a red line around them and it says hazardous. There was policies basically of government and corporate companies, right? That were basically the redlining told banks and other mortgage companies, for example, not to lend in those areas because they were considered not worthy of getting credit. And that you see very clearly what that impact is, right? That means that people will not be able to qualify for home loans or get home loans. They will not have access to credit, right? For small business development, all the things that help communities pass on wealth, right? Well, first, increase upward mobility, right? And and opportunity based on their own hard work and also pass on wealth, right? Intergenerational, you know, wealth transfer uh, to their descendants. And that's how some communities have been able to do that, right? Because they have access to credit. Some communities have been stopped in their tracks (laughs) from doing that, right? So this very significant underinvestment and disinvestment in low-income communities. And those maps show it all. Sometimes in presentations, I'll I'll have a redlining map of the 1900s and, and so forth, right? And all the way till the Community Reinvestment Act. And I'll overlay the coverage of digital inclusion map of a city, and it's the same map. And when you look at the communities that are the least connected, right, that don't have uh, fixed internet or subscriptions and devices, they're the ones that are the lowest income, right? So it's basically the perpetuating the the cycle of intergenerational poverty. Uh, And you can see it so clearly, right? Because when you compare the two, you know, it, it keeps us in that cycle of low income people not having access and thus not being able. And certainly, We'll talk more about this, I'm sure. Everything has changed, right? With the advent of the personal computer, that's an amazing thing, right? With a person and their computer and a little knowledge of coding can create a Google, can create a Facebook, major corporations now, right? That's revolutionary, right? And it could be democratizing for like everybody could have access to that, right? But we have the digital divide. So there's a limitation there. And if everybody doesn't have access to the tools of the digital economy, then we're limiting our our whole economy, not just individual people's lives and their uh, chance for upward mobility, but we're limiting the very, our very GDP and productivity. We're limiting productivity when you don't make those platforms available to everyone. Yeah. And I think you hit on some great points of this cyclical nature that it's it's taken us on and how it would be in America's interest to help out these communities and to be sure that we are centering them to be able to get them access and, and other things. So I think you, you brought up some great points. That leads me to my other question, thinking about digital equity and kind of moving forward to equity is kind of in right now. People want to move to a more equitable society, kind of go over these past wrongdoings. How does digital redlining affected these communities of color and low-income students around infrastructure and affordability of broadband access today? So we can kind of continue the line of discussion that, that we started, right? And that is now we're into the fourth industrial revolution, That right? That's automation, AI, 
cognitive computing, smart cities, the internet of things, right? And much more. And so it's more and more profound whether you have access or not. So the underlying assumption in our society by which policy has been made in this area of the internet, telecommunications, in fact, in general, and the internet, um, is the assumption that it's it's a luxury. It's, it's a luxury good that if you can afford it, you can have it. Everything has changed, certainly, you know, through the third industrial revolution and the advent of computers and personal computers, it mattered a lot, and now even more intensely. And what we saw with COVID, the impact on low-income communities that have been, you know, left out and are on the wrong side of the digital divide, were disproportionately impacted by uh, infection rates by a huge margin, and it's because very powerful things like this, right? If you didn't have access to the internet, your children could not even access school. You couldn't access your doctor because they were told, you know, at the advent of the pandemic, you know, doctor's offices had to close and just do telehealth, right? So you didn't even have access to your doctor to keep up with your medications and so forth. So what COVID did was just put, pushed us, we think, like about a decade into the fourth industrial revolution. In other words, we had to speed up our use of technology. And it was clear, right, because it was on the news every night, finally, right? Before we had to convince people, hey, this is a problem, right? People who might not be able to see it, right? Because they're not they're not that mom who's taking their child every day after school outside the school building to try to access the internet or to McDonald's to do their homework. So trying to make it real for people, right? We've, we've been talking about it. And, well, I've, and I certainly have been talking about it since, you know, the colonial study, right? Trying to tell these stories, create the maps of who has access and who doesn't and all that. And with the pandemic, it became evident. So to answer your question, it's more and more profound. It's impacting every area of community development or what we talk about in the healthcare industry, the social determinants of health. It impacts all of them. Educational equity, having opportunities in, in educational equity. And actually, Michigan State University has done an, did an incredible study before the pandemic of the impact of children or school students, right, K through 12, not having access to the internet at home. Profound impact on their grades, definitely on their grades and whether they went to college, but even if they went into STEM careers. And think about STEM careers, right? We need to attract more and more young people and certainly young people of color and diverse you know, populations into this field because right now in the in the fourth industrial revolution, we have a serious problem in community development. We have algorithmic bias. So the, the people creating the algorithms don't realize maybe that they're perpetuating the past. So if you had racism or a systemic discrimination in the past, it's just based on cognitive data and it's going to spit out the same outcomes. And so you're going to perpetuate that. So many reasons we need diversity, you know, people that have this knowledge, right? But think about even me, right? Going into the colonias and I was in community development. You know, I was educated. I knew this field of you know, small business development, uh, portable housing, uh, you know, and workforce development and all of that. But I had to learn about why we had a digital divide, how to fix it. I had to learn about broadband networks and technology. Because 
you can't make policy in this area unless you understand all the details. Now, I'm not an engineer, but I had to learn a lot about broadband networks. And in fact, I wouldn't, when COVID hit, I wouldn't have been able to provide a solution in the city of San Antonio unless I had had that background, right? I, I understood broadband networks. I understood the best technology in the, in the industry, right? That industry has access to. But what about low-income schools or low-income neighborhoods, right? So the reason we need to care about it and how it impacts low-income communities is that it impacts all the social determinants of health, right? Access to care, educational equity, workforce opportunities, upward mobility, the built environment, right? Whether or not you have the infrastructure, it impacts uh, everything now because we're, we're deep into the digital economy. It's an intersecting issue. That's when you know you have to get to the root cause and solve that. It's a perfect example of how we have to be adaptable now. You know, I've written about, you know, the future of work and how to prepare people. One of the things that you need to do is be a lifelong learner, right? So I had to learn a whole new field. And I thought I thought I was already crazy because I had gone from being an English teacher to going into Latino studies and then into um, finance. <laughs> and my sister, you know, laughs at me because she was an MBA from UT Austin and well, whiz at math. And she was like, how are you in finance? You didn't even know math. And I was like, because I was an English background, right? English and government. And so it's always funny to me because I had to learn, right? I had to learn how to make the loans and do new market tax credits with my colleagues to build affordable housing and so forth, right? Likewise, I had to learn about broadband and broadband networks and the technology and the policy. And it's what I, I want for, for young people and for people you know, in general, right? To help prepare them because we have the technology, it's a false scarcity that's created with the digital divide. It's not really true that we don't know how to solve this. It's not really true that only some people can have access and others can't. No, we actually know how to solve this. And there is the technology, off-the-shelf technology, you know, that can solve this in low-income communities. It's about people having access to this knowledge and information and sharing it so that they can know, hey, we can get that. We we deserve that. We need that. It's not just if somebody wants to provide it for you. And then you have the, you know, the issue of affordability. Because in this country, we are almost double some of the developed world in our costs per month, right, of internet subscription, like almost double Germany and certainly much higher prices than South Korea. France and so forth. So we have an affordability problem too. And it's it's because of lack of competition. There needs to be healthy competition in a, in a free market, right? So that you can have, get to a price point, right? That works. The free market, however, has not taken care of it, right? It's just like with affordable housing, there have to be other interventions to create win-win situations like we did, do in community development every day to create capital stacks that work for families to actually buy a home, you have to build in different, you know, partners, right, to come to the table to give them equity. Well, likewise, we need innovative solutions and we have them to close the digital divide. Yeah, no, and I think that's super helpful because we know how to solve this issue. Like we know exactly what to do. And, and to hear you kind of spell out how digital, this, this digital divide is a part of 
every facet of a person's life is really helpful. And I think to be able to kind of see that and bring up the social determinants of health, really have people see, okay, this is an economic issue and something that's going to affect all of us. And mm-hmm. so I definitely appreciate that. Um, I wanted to wrap up with a last question, thinking about more of what you said, you said policy. And so thinking about what role do local governments play in really eradicating digital redlining, making things right, and trying to move forward to try to solve the digital divide and what are some things that governments can do and how can community members work with them? Yeah, so the, the way we got here was actually, you know, through law and policy. <laughs> At first, when cable was the cable industry formed, right, there, it was regulated. And if you were going to go into a city, you do a franchise agreement with that city or entity town, right? governmental entity, and you would get a franchise agreement. And the requirement was that you'd have to build out to the whole city. You'd have to cover everybody. But with deregulation of cable and then deregulation of the telephone industry, which are two uh, industries, right, that provide broadband service now, right, with the deregulation, there was no longer a build-out requirement, nor would you be required to update your infrastructure. So, you know, making it useful for today's devices, right? In the case of fiber, right, which we consider future-proof because it's the speed of light technology and it has huge capacity, right, for expansion. And and just with optical equipment, you can add capacity, right, to your fiber network and meet the many needs and symmetrical speeds. And, you know, from multi-gigabit, you know, for hospitals and, you know, schools and others that need to deal with a lot of data and telehealth, things that are, you don't want any lag in in the buffering, right? Because it's life and death, right? To all kinds, you know, all kinds of needs. What's happening with the fourth industrial revolution, right, is the pace of change is very fast. So that's why we talk about fibers as future-proof. So there was no longer a requirement to build out, right? In many cases, ISPs would still get funds from the federal government, you know, to, to build infrastructure. But the the decision to build it, and that gets to a business decision, right? Because you have to maximize profits for your shareholders. That's the way our economy works. That's the way our corporate structure works. If you can't justify in investing in infrastructure in a low-income community because you won't have that return on investment or in upgrading infrastructure. So what we see in, in the conversation of digital redlining, that National Digital Inclusion Alliance, Brian Whitaker has written on this from Oklahoma State, what we see is a lack of infrastructure or affordability, but also substandard technology, right? So maybe it's the old copper lines of the telephone industry or a coaxial cable with no upgrades to give you inter broadband speed. They, they can, cable has can get pretty good speeds. And I can share a map that I used in my telehealth article about speeds and capacity, you know, and, and what we're looking at. So like right now, AT&T is, you know, getting rid of DSL because it's just so expensive to upgrade and it, it's inferior, right? To to what the cable company. So they're going all wireless and wireless is 99% wired. So it's basically looking for the first fiber, right? So we have to keep that in mind too. So it's essentially the, you know, the historic past, our policies and corporate practices now impact the digital divide. So historically, you can see if there's no requirement to build out, you're going to get this, you know, more investment in high-end communities or new subdivisions, you know, right, Uh, higher-end subdivisions, 
And it's the same same thing that we saw with electricity, right? The rural electrification, the big energy companies, conglomerates were providing to businesses, uh, wealthier people, they could have, you know, have their house fully electrified. <laughs> and at that time, right, it was, oh, low-income people and rural areas weren't covered. Or if they were covered, oh, you just need a light, no plugs for appliances or anything like that. Just like the speed now, right? Oh, you just need 25 down, three up. So it's very a very interesting parallel there. So it, it is all about laws, policies, and practices. So now, why do we have this so-called scarcity, right? Not lack of availability, lack of connectivity, inability for people to get subscriptions. Now, when we have technology and we're doing incredible things, why would low-income people not have access to it? Well, that's where we need to be really alert to how we're making policy, right? Because like the maps that are created a lot of times and people send them to me because they're like, what? San Antonio is 98% covered or Bear County is 99% covered and Brownsville is, you know, 98% covered. They're playing with the word access because the industry needs to keep up with where they've deployed any infrastructure, whatever it is, copper, coaxial cable or or um, or fiber. So they report that to the FCC, but that's not an accurate depiction of the digital divide, right? Because can people afford it? Is there a place in their neighborhood where that line that goes through provides connectivity? There are a lot of questions, right? You know, the intent may not be discrimination, right? But the outcome is just discrimination. And the fact that we know that's the outcome, it makes it a civil rights issue. You need to be alert to so much, right? And you need to have a lot of information. And in in our recent session, you know, one of the bills talks about being technology neutral. And that sounds really good. Like, you're neutral. You're just fair, right? Technology neutral is not true. You can't compare copper to fiber. You can't say that copper is sufficient for the fourth industrial revolution and the digital economy that we're in the middle of. And you can't say that it doesn't impact disproportionately people of color, low-income communities, and so forth. So you have to look at the impact and not close your eyes to how how we got here, it's actual practices. And this pretending that there's scarcity, that oh we'll get to them when they get better, <laughs> as a you know when they look better to invest in. No, we don't have to wait. Actually, local governments can play an incredible role. Local governments need to invest in fiber just to run this incredible operation, right? From towns to cities and so forth, right? to offer services, right? To run the business. Uh, some of them have electric uh, public utilities. You can use those networks, middle mile networks, right? To connect people. And you can form public-private partnerships. In San Antonio, it's the solution is that I proposed during COVID, right? And that we're, we're trying to implement right now is using the backhaul fiber of public entities. And in the case of the demonstration project that I'm working on the Edgewood ISD demonstration, we're using the backhaul fiber of the school. And it's so close, right? So we created a private wireless network. It's basically aggregated demand. So aggregating all the student households into one account that the school holds, and it goes back to the school. So you have all the filters that you need, but you get to cover students in their home. And it's an industry model. So I I just 
presented that as a model for low-income schools. So it, that's a perfect example of how the scarcity is falsely created. We have the technology. It's much more efficient than some of the other solutions that have been promoted. And we had to do some of that, the, the mobile hotspots and so forth that aren't uh, sufficient in low-income communities many times because there's not enough connectivity and there's limited data plans and all that. And it's unsustainable for schools to have to spend that much money or the state or whoever to spend that much money when you can have permanent infrastructure in low-income communities. With that, I'll turn it back over to you, Thomas. No, thank you so much. You beautifully painted a picture of the historical context that we must talk about when presenting on these policies, because we'll we'll get to them and we'll kind of see those words that you're talking about, like technology neutral, and say, oh, it seems great. And we'll read over it and I'm like, okay, this is going to be awesome. But a lot of times at area, we talk about those unintended consequences that are going to happen, that are going to come out of these bills, and how are we really going to meet the needs of families and students and, and community members, and of course, that it's a, a disproportionately affecting communities of color. So I really appreciate the conversation today um, and you presenting such great work. So thank you so much for coming by, Jordan. Thank you. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.